Welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it is my profound honor to present this special Orange Shirt Day episode of the podcast to commemorate the ongoing impacts of colonialism and the genocidal history and legacy of the residential school system this country imposed on the First Peoples. First, we'll hear a conversation between scholar and author Kateria Quincy Dan and Michelle Good about her new novel, Five Little Indians. And then we'll check in with the library's CEO, Danielle McDonald, to find out how the library is working to develop stronger ties with Ottawa's Indigenous community and history. With compassion and insight, Five Little Indians by Michelle Good chronicles the desperate quest of five residential school survivors to come to terms with their past and ultimately find a way forward. This novel, her first, has been nominated for the 2020 Scotiabank Giller Prize. She spoke with Kateria Quincy Dam. Here's their conversation. First of all, congratulations. I saw that Five Little Indians made the long list of nominations for the Giller Prize. That's just incredible. I can't imagine what that's like, but what was that like? You know, it's really strange because you think that you would sort of lose your mind, right? But I think that it was so far from the realm of possibility for me in my own mind that it's taken a couple of days to really sort of settle in that this has actually happened. And I'm just, I'm astonished and I'm, I feel wonderful, of course, and, and just so honored to be with that group of writers those are that's a group of phenomenal writers and to be to be recognized that way is just just a tremendous thing I'm pretty thrilled and for your debut novel <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean it's not the first time that a debut novel has been nominated or you know uh, Ian Williams last year his novel was his debut novel but I think that that when a debut novel is is nominated that a person has a bit of a um, a higher profile as a writer than I did. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so in that sense, I, I think it's pretty extraordinary. I'm over the moon, as you can imagine. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. So before we talk about Five Little Indians, I'd like to hear what brought you, a lawyer from the Red Pheasant Cree Nation in Saskatchewan, to writing. I, I think we're all born with a, with something we need to do. And, you know, these are just my own silly thoughts and so on. But I've always written. From the time I was a little kid, I was that nerdy little kid with a journal under my arm, making notes and writing silly poems and uh, and just observing. And it was a way that I always related to the word or well to the word yes but I meant to say the world <laughs> <laughs> right. the, the world of words <laughs> the world of words yeah and, I, and uh, a friend reminded me a few years ago that uh, we we had we spent our early teens in the same town and she she told me she said do you remember that day when you told me you were going to leave this company town and you were going to be a writer I was 13 years old and I said, now I do. Now I remember. And uh, and that's, of course, when this book was uh, in the making. And it was really encouraging to be reminded of my intentions from such a long time ago. 
it's incredible when those little seeds that we plant as our younger selves come to fruition. Boy, howdy, is it ever. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, as I've said very often, uh, we're, this is not a dress rehearsal. This is our life. And so we need to live our best life. We need to, you know, when we're ready to pass on to the other side, you know, what better thing to be able to say about your life that I did what I wanted to do, what I felt compelled to do, and I or I tried. And and I I feel more comfortable that that's how I'm going to feel. I'm always curious when I speak to other writers, um, what's your writing process like? Uh, most of it doesn't involve actually writing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm writing all the time. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's that too, right? But, uh, but I, I, I have found and said to some friends, you know, it's amazing how much of writing is actually thinking and, um, and conceptualizing and, you know, creating these characters in your heart and in your mind so that they're, they're they're real and meaningful and and they pop off the page as as real human beings um but the other thing that i that i feel really strongly about is writing every day even if it's not writing on the on the major writing project i'm on um but writing every day i don't have a schedule i don't write at five in the morning every day but i do write every day um because Otherwise, like anything else, you get rusty. You get distanced from your own manuscript um, and it becomes more of a challenge to get back to it. September 8th was the long list of the uh, Giller nominations was released. And September 9th and 10th across Canada, there was a scholar strike teach-in to protest anti-Black, racist and colonial police brutality. So in the midst of these movements and the pandemic, why do you think Five Little Indians has struck a chord? One of the things that I I like to to make note of is that, you know, I began working with uh, Indigenous groups when I was a teenager, and it's been a part of my life all that time. And I'm old enough now, going to be 64 in October, I'm old enough now that I can look back on my life and I can see how much has changed since those early days when people were really struggling to make a difference in terms of addressing issues of uh, systemic racism and um, Indigenous rights and, and so on. But I think we've come to a point where people are tired of talking nice. I think people are just dead. I know I am are just deadly tired of, you know, standing with hat in hand, accepting a responsibility that somehow we have to educate non-Indigenous people in the institutions of this country, political and otherwise, about the systemic and historical racism that Black and Indigenous people have had to live with for generation upon generation upon generation. The responsibility doesn't rest with us to educate. The responsibility rests with those people to educate themselves, to open themselves, and to be prepared to make meaningful change within their own perspectives and within the way that they deal with our peoples. So I think we're at a very interesting time in history when people are standing up and they're 
strengthened by all of the progress that we've made in our own worlds to, to just demand that this must change, that it must, and token change is no longer adequate. How do you think that um, stories about the lives of five residential school survivors after they leave residential school contributes to that? Well, in my view, this is the story that needs to be told more than anything else, because um, it's about the impacts. It's about the the manner in which um, the harms that were caused, these people continue to echo through the generations. And one of the things that has disturbed me just for so many years is hearing this constant refrain in, uh, you know, um, whether it's comments online or whether it's just people in conversation or whatever, why can't they just get over this? And so I wanted to tell a story about this is why they can't get over it. This is why we can't get over it because it is such a deep and profound harm. And the, the other thing is that we didn't experience the, the residential school nightmare individually. Of course, individual people experienced it, but we experienced it collectively as a people. And thus, as these individual people were harmed, so were, so were we as a people collectively. And if that is not understood, that, you know, <laughs> this is, if it's not understood, then meaningful reconciliation, and I say that word with a tad of bitterness in my mouth, will never be possible. So I felt that if um, I could put this in a fictional, fictional context, um, based on the truths I've come to understand in my own life, with my own family and friends who um, had these experiences, that it might create a safe space where people might not feel threatened, that they could slip into a book comfortably and then, <laughs> whether they knew it or not, um, might uh, be changed by it, might be, their perspectives might be, um, uh, might become informed by it. Mm. So um, I guess in a sense that looks at how the, the book um, uh, ripples within colonial society and mainstream society, but um, I'm thinking about Anishinaabe uh, intellectual cultural theorist and author Gerald Visner, who's from the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota, and how he's challenged Indigenous lit studies by demonstrating the generative possibilities of focusing not on loss, victimry, or mere survival, but on what he calls survivance. And he defines that as an active state of presence as, a re, as renunciations of dominance, tragedy, and victimry. So survival as resistance, survivance. So how do you see your novel and the five interwoven stories within it in relation to that concept of survivance? Because here we are. We are here. We have survived. And these characters, most of them, they survived as well. And it demonstrates, I think, the just the amazing resilience of us as a people, our creativity, our brilliance, our understanding of our world in our own context and our never ending determination 
to live within that reality. We've never given up. We've never said, you know, we've never stopped saying that this is, this is who we are and we must continue to live in the way that we are, in our ways. And so, I mean, I think you can't step away from, you know, the, the realities of history and how those things have affected us because, because they have. But at the same time, inside that history is this, um, I don't know, this, just this gem, this, um, this perfect little piece of reality that is who we are, that has continued regardless, regardless of all of the harms that we've suffered. Um, and so I guess that's how I see it fitting in there, is that it's a demonstration of truth and resilience. I've read that you've said that you were inspired by your family's stories of their experiences at residential schools, particularly your mother's. Um, but how did they inspire you to write this novel? My mother's um, experiences really shocked me um, because my mother married a non-Indigenous man and she used to refer to the residential school that she went to as boarding school. And my concept of boarding school at that time, even though many of the residential schools were at a, for a period of time referred to as boarding schools, my concept of boarding school was a completely different thing. It was, you know, <laughs> yeah, just a very, very different thing. It certainly wasn't residential schools. So when I got to be about 11, 12 years old, and I came to understand what exactly boarding school was um, in my mother's experience, and she started telling me some of the things that she experienced there, I went through a bit of cognitive dissonance and I went through, it was just something that shocked me and never, ever left me um, in terms of what she experienced and what she had been so quiet about um, in her time as my mother up to that point. And so it just, it is some, it's been something I've been writing about since the 90s in, you know, my own personal writings, in poetry, some of it published, some of it not. And it's just, it just felt like it needed to be told. I needed to express that. In a way, it's like, how does a person rise above that? How could my mother become this amazing woman in spite of that? And it's captured me. It's held me for all these years. I worked with the Aboriginal Healing Foundation and to a lesser extent, the Legacy of Hope Foundation as a consultant for many years. And do, in doing so, I worked with survivors, read um, testimonies of many survivors. And like far too many of us, I had family and community members attend the schools the stories of their experiences are devastating, heartbreaking, they're enraging, but they're also testaments to their strength and the will to endure, as you've just spoken about in terms of your own family and your mom. Um, survivance. What made you focus on what happened um, to these characters in your novel once they left the schools? 
because they left with they left like they were little time bombs. They left as traumatized, terrorized, abused, brutalized, and I I wanted people to hear the story of not just that the that the terrible experiences of the schools happened, but that then people had to deal with those things for the rest of their lives. And that it's so amazing and miraculous, really. And to just deepen their understanding of, um, you know, as I said earlier, why we can't get over it, why it is an ongoing theme in our efforts at, you know, reaching for healing, um, you know, reaching for for restoring really healthy, strong, vibrant communities and how all of those factors work against it as well. How all of those, those impacts of abuse work against, um, you know, creating those kinds of vibrant, healthy communities that we definitely um, came from and have the ability to, to reinvigorate, I suppose is the word I'm looking for. Right. Um, I know that for many years, the idea that residential schools um, were attempting to assimilate uh, students at the schools, it bothered me so much, particularly because the reality was there was no plan to assimilate. Once students left the schools, there was no future for them. There was no attempt to assimilate. There was no attempt to provide them with opportunities to fit into um, society. They were expected not to survive or to live on the fringes, um, belonging kind of neither here nor there. And that's where many of them did end up. So um, that's why it intrigued me so much when I saw that um, the focus of your novel was really on what happens in the aftermath. It's something that we don't really talk enough about. Well, you know, and I'm so glad that you, that you framed that really nicely for me, um, because yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's a couple of themes in the book about you know kids that make their way home, and they don't belong. They don't belong anymore because you know they don't speak the language. Assimilation is actually kind of a kind way of thinking about what the intention was, and you know, the intention or the intention was really annihilation. I mean, it was to de-Indian us, right, if possible, but whatever happened to us was was irrelevant. Whatever happened to us after was irrelevant. I found that in a way, we as readers don't really fully know what happened to these five survivors. In some cases, we're left to fill in the blanks of the brutality they endured. Why did you make that choice? Well, a couple of reasons. One, because I want the focus to be about um, what happened after the school. Um, the other thing is that this is not a story of the abusers. And um, I think that if you focused on the abuse specifically, um, then it becomes the focus turns to the abuser. And I didn't want to give them any room in this book. I didn't want to give those monstrous people who had these little kids in their care. I didn't want to give them space in this book whatsoever. Um, the other thing too, is that I, I wanted to focus on, and I mean, if, if you read through it and you, 
you know, the what happened to them is weaved in quite carefully and quite subtly. Um, the physical violence, the sexual abuse, it's there. Um, but that's all it needs. That's all it needs. We don't need the gory details to understand what sexual abuse means. Um, we don't need to know exactly. And, you know, we don't need to know, you know, he put this here, he put that there to understand that sexual abuse occurred and what the impacts of it are. So, so primarily those two reasons is that this is about how they dealt with what happened to them. And also this isn't about the abusers. This isn't about um, their behavior. And, you know, the, I just didn't want to give them any room in it. And it, it reflects um, so much the reality of survivors, um, many of whom for decades were unable to speak of what had happened to them. Um, or had only, you know, gestured toward it, made, um, you know, references to it. But their families and the people around them didn't really know for many years, if ever, um, what they'd endured. Well, I believe, you know, I, I yes, I agree. And I, I believe, I believe that my mother was sexually abused. There were little hints, but just tiny little hints. But even the things that that she she was able to told to tell me, you know, she told me in such an abstract way, because how horrifying is it not only to have experienced it, but then to reach inside yourself to the worst day of your life, to the worst experiences of your life, and to you know dredge them up. How difficult is that? And yeah, I totally agree. I think there are many people to this day that have never, ever spoken about what happened, you know, and primarily because it's unspeakable. And, and it's, uh, you know, an ongoing unfolding of those layers that, that we're still living through. Um, so what did you intend for readers to take away from the experience of reading these stories in Five Little Indians? <clears throat> I wanted them to know why. I wanted them to know why our people still suffer so profoundly. I wanted them to know that we're beautiful. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I mean, look at us. <laughs> yes, look at us, for heaven's sake, right? And that we're, you know, and I wanted them to see you know, the sense of community that these kids made with each other, right? That they, you know, they all went to the same school, but they weren't all from the same communities. But their sense of who they were, they created this incredible little community among themselves, this deep sense of loyalty among themselves to, you know, support and help each other survive, you know, the way our, the way our communities in their best incarnations are. And, you know, but I also really wanted the truth of this, of the impacts. And like you say, you know, where we're just thrown out, thrown out of the school when we reach the age of 16 and left to thrive or die and who cares. And I wanted people to look at a survivor with a different perspective, um, to look at a person that is still suffering the impacts of those experiences, whether generational or intergenerational. 
to look at those people through a different lens and um, and to perhaps be not only more compassionate, but um, more willing to adjust their way of walking in the world to accommodate us in the way that they should, that this is our space, North America, Turtle Island is our space, and that we, we, they need to hold space for us. And maybe this will inspire them to do that as we continue to regenerate and we continue to um, uh, recreate ourselves in the image of what, of the people we really are. And I think it also raises the issue that um, this goes beyond the individual and to our communities. I mean, people look at our communities sometimes and think, well, why is it like that? Why is it like that there? But the reality is that um, it's not just, or only the story of the, the children who were taken. It's the story of the parents whose children were taken. It's the story of communities left without children. And, well, um, you know, that's replicated also in the children's aid scoops which you allude to as well there's a scene in in the book as well about that yes and that's and that's why i say we didn't experience this individually we experienced it collectively as a people and you know i think uh, the story about um you know Maisie and her mother and you know not being able to go back and kenny and his mother and particularly the story about kenny when he first gets home with his uncle and and there's no children in the community, you know. Uh, there's no children over the age of six in the community. It's just completely bereft of children. And what is done to the community when you take away the children is you take away the role of the parent and the grandparent. What other role is there more important to the parent and grandparent than to bring along the next generation and to bring along the history of eternity, the history of forever from the beginning through the next generation? And so, yeah, <laughs> you know, how does that affect everybody in the community? And, and it did in just the ways that you're, that you're, um, that you're referencing is that, um, yeah, those harms are reflected in the day-to-day -day living in our community. The, sorry, community is plural. I thought it was very subtle and powerful that you brought in the, the CAS scoops as well and kind of made that connection because um, although many people, as you said at the start of this, that many people think, well, why don't they just get over it? Um, but the, you know, because the residential schools have closed, um, but the scoops continue and, and that they are a legacy of the residential school. There's a clear connection between the residential schools and the, the children's AIDS, uh, societies getting access to children on reserve. Absolutely. There is no question in my mind. I mean, people go back to 1969 and that was when um, the employees of residential schools wanted to be treated uh, yeah, as other federal employees were being treated. And that was one reason that that transition was made to have kids going into the public schools and so on. And the, the residential schools were, were starting to, uh, to wind down. But 
then it was just a lockstep transition from the what was being done through the residential schools to then what is being done and continues to be done through the scooping of babies, through the taking away of, of children. And I didn't, um, you know, I thought about it after the fact. Don't you hate that? <laughs> uh, but, but I thought about um uh, after the book was already out, I thought about why didn't I raise the issue? Why didn't I write about uh, um, the question of forced sterilization? How women are placed in this terrible situation where they're given an ultimatum that I'm going to, you know, either you're going to be sterilized or I'm going to call the social worker, right? And, and you know, there is, you know, the the evidence has been established clearly and, and um you know, without question that these sterilizations occurred. And, um, you know, that could have been something that I put in with Lucy, but it didn't occur to me at the time. And, uh, but I felt that it was really important to, um, there's a, there's one passage, there's one little dialogue between Lucy and Clara, where Clara's asking, well, how did they even know you were here? And Lucy's response is maybe, maybe they, maybe they do this with all Indian babies, with all, when any, whenever an Indian baby is born, which is something we have seen. Um, that in fact, yes, if you're an Indigenous woman having a baby, you can likely expect there's going to be a social worker waiting to catch the baby. It's just shocking. So yeah, I, I felt that that had to be put in there and just the terror and the horror that mothers feel when they're sitting there in that most vulnerable place after you've given birth and um, and you get this visit from somebody who wants to make sure that you're a good mother. Or not that, one who's actually <laughs> assuming that you're not a good mother. Right. I feel like I'm hearing the start of your next novel. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> <laughs> the next one after that maybe I don't know <laughs> but, I mean those realities are so there I mean there might be something that uh, that might get woven in but no the next one which I've started is is uh is a little different yeah tell us about it okay if you can <laughs> uh sure a little bit it's um um my my grandfather was related to Mistahi Masqua, Chief Big Bear, and uh, my great his mother uh, was uh, Big Bear's niece, and um, she never saw an Indigenous person until she was in her late teens, and um, I'm assuming this because I can't prove it factually, but because she was in Big Bear's band. Um, she was likely at Frog Lake when the incident came down there in response to uh, to the starvation tactics of Sir John A. Macdonald. And so I start the story there with her life and how she responded to, to those times in history because she was, and I do know this for a fact, um, she was in Big Bear's band when they were being harassed by the Northwest Mounted Police and chased through the Cypress Hills into Montana. And where eventually after Imsis, who I believe was her father, fought and fought and fought to, um, to get land set aside for the Canadian Crees. They used to call them the Canadian Crees. 
and eventually a portion of the Rocky Boy Reservation in Montana was set aside for that. So it's that story, but it's also her relationship with a character based on my mom, um, who would have been her granddaughter, and how her experiences during the clearing of the plains, if I may borrow James Daszak's title, um, impacted her role as a grandmother to my mother and how that impacted my mother's role as a mother. And so it goes through, and my mother's very interesting life as well. She was, uh, she was off in New Zealand training as a midwife in 1947. Uh, when I have her pass from when she had to get a pass to leave the reserve to capitalize on a Anglican church scholarship to get her over to New Zealand. And, uh, and just, you know, that amazing, wonderful story, but all linked in to that terrible time in, in our history when they were clearing the plains. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what it is. I can't wait. <laughs> now that you've no. teased me with that <laughs> okay I'll get back to work on it but, but um, uh, it's uh, it's again that whole thing and I think you know you know like why am I writing about this like with five lily Dins, where you were you know asking a little bit earlier it's like seeing history from our perspective like not revisionism, but re-hyphen vision, right? To, to revision, revisioning what that history actually was and how we actually experienced it, how we saw it in the moment. And, and I think that that is equally important in terms of, um, you know, as Winston, Chir you know, Winston's, Winston Churchill's favorite statement about history. It's absolutely correct. And we are living as everybody mourns the death of the Sir John A. Macdonald statue, right? We are living that. That is the history as told by them. And it's a history that needs to be told by us. And I think that it's very effectively told in fiction because I think more people read fiction and, uh, and also because it's a gentler way um, of communicating, you know, that reality, that history, how we experienced it from our own perspective. So, yeah, that. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time today to speak with me. And um, I really do. I, I do look forward to your next book. I thank you for writing Five Little Indians and, and getting the Giller nomination gives oh. me hope <laughs> so that gives me hope too I mean and it goes back you know it goes back to my sense of uh you know how how we have just levered doors open I think back when I was 16 in foster care thank you very much and I forced my social worker to let me live alone in a little walk-up cold water flat um and I went to school because I'm a nerd. And, um, and I remember the moment that I was, uh, that I understood literary fiction. It was like this massive epiphany and I, had, and I understood it and it was like, oh my God. It's like, there is, there is, it's like song lyrics where meaning is woven into all of this stuff. And I just became a can lit junkie. But at that time, you know, there was Maria Campbell 
Uh, there were some American Indigenous authors, but just Maria Campbell, that amazing, incredible woman, writer, warrior. And, you know, there was The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, which was, of course, written beautiful play, but it was written by a non-Indigenous man. Um, and I think about how much we've levered our way into being able to speak our truth in the way, in the place, and in the manner that we choose. And that, I think, is great cause for celebration. Indeed. Miigwech, thank you so much. Thank you. It was such a nice time talking to you. That was Kateria Quincy Dam in conversation with Michelle Good about her new novel, Five Little Indians. I should mention here that Kateria is one of the contributors to the stunning graphic novel, This Place, 150 Years Retold. It's a book that explores Canada's brutal history through the eyes of Indigenous creators, and it's a book we often recommend to anyone curious about our history and the many ways colonialism continues to dominate the lives of so many First Nations communities. I know the word reconciliation has lost much of its meaning in recent years, and that progress on these fundamental issues is proceeding at a far slower pace than we could possibly justify. But I want to suggest that our first step, the first thing we, those of us who are not Indigenous, can do to start moving things in the right direction, is to read Indigenous work, support Indigenous artists, and to learn our history and celebrate the amazing work being done by Indigenous authors. Given the importance of Orange Shirt Day, we also wanted to find out what the Ottawa Public Library has been doing to try to address systemic racism and how the institution is working to improve its relationship with the Indigenous community. So I spoke with the library's CEO, Danielle McDonald. Here's a little of that conversation. Why is it important for us to respond to the TRC calls to action? Well, I think the simplest thing is it's the right thing to do. You may not know this, but back in February in 2018 and July in 2019, we took reports forward to the board. The Ottawa Public Library Board is really the, the main um, steward of the Ottawa Public Library, and they received these reports. And, you know, when we went out initially, we proposed that we do a statement and had all these things. And what we realized when we came back a year later, that we really weren't doing it right. Our heart was in the right place, but it wasn't right. What we needed to do was build a relationship. And when we consulted more, we we found out that the right way, it's important, you know, to address the TRC calls to action, but you have to do it the right way. And that is through building relationships with the community. And I think that's been our great lesson learned, but I think we've been, we've been really trying to build that relationship. And, um, you know, it starts with recognizing who you're serving. And we know that uh, in our community, we are the third fastest growing Indigenous community in Canada. We also have the largest Inuit population outside the North. And we have long, long-standing history of providing service to um, many people in the community, but it's really about how we take our collections, our programs, and our spaces to make them welcoming for Indigenous communities, but also provide opportunities for our our customers to learn more about rich cultures, histories, and literature of all cultures across Canada. So it's that dual role, being open um, to everyone being part of the library, but also trying to educate and provide information uh, through programming, collections, and welcoming spaces 
to teach about cultures and the importance of that. Um, and this is something we are evolving on. As I said earlier, you know, it's about building relationships. It's about learning from the communities, not necessarily doing what we think is right, but working together to find the right path. That's really why I think it's important that we do this in this work. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we're, we're a learning organization and, and what better, better way to learn than through working with others. Libraries are places where uh, people of all backgrounds gather and learn about culture, um, develop literacy skills, connect with the wider world, um, music, movies, books. It's, it's uh, for many people, it's the only access to the internet. And I'm curious, what is the Ottawa Public Library doing to showcase Indigenous cultures? Well, I think we're doing a lot more than we did before, just because, as I mentioned earlier, it's an important piece of our, our library um, strategic agenda to do this. But we've started, uh, first of all, we, we brought forward a content services framework. And really, simply put, what this means, this is a guide that tells you how we will purchase, procure, and deliver collections through our organization. But it includes an an Indigenous collections statement that pays particular attention to the Algonquin Anishinaabe's First Nations. We continue to purchase materials in all available formats created by the Algonquin Anishinaabe's and other Indigenous authors. And I, you know, staff have told me we bought this Algonquin picture dictionary from Kitigan ZD. We also created and launched an Indigenous web page that features and highlights Indigenous authors and voices in our OPL collections and programs. And the key point here is the web page was created with involvement of the Indigenous community members. Uh, we also promote, we've, we've had, um, you know, ability to promote OP, uh, the materials in our collections by Indigenous authors. So we did that at the Indigenous Summer Solstice Festival, and that was with the presence of our bookmobile. We had Odawa Aboriginal Family Festival, uh, Children and Youth Powwow. We had an Inuit Wellness Day, and we had the opening ceremonies of the um, Mami Sarvik Healing Center. So we continue to try and find ways to connect and, and uh, get more out in terms of the Indigenous community. One of the things that has um, long been exciting for, for all of us who love the public library and who also uh, are interested in Library and Archives Canada is the new Central Library Facility um, that the, the two organizations are, are building together. How will that building reflect the experiences of the Algonquin peoples and the urban Indigenous communities here in Ottawa? Before I just get to that answer, because it's you have to know this is something I'm so passionate about. I am so thrilled that in January we released our design and we had a wonderful opening ceremony that included members from the Indigenous community. So I think the... Um, the best way to answer that initially is that we have become, we have begun a conversation with um, people from Indigenous communities, and that was part of our plan to consult on the design, and uh, that is interior and exterior, and it is through this consultation and collaborative process that we've been able to come up with something so wonderful. So I'm very excited that we had that initial process to work through, but it won't just be about the design or the interior. It will be something that we hope to continue uh, consulting and collaborating with the Indigenous community. Um, 
We have also hired Indigenous consultants to help us develop plans for engaging um, on terms of Indigenous art curation um, and to identify Indigenous artists to develop pieces for the facility. We continue to work with representatives from Kitiganzi, B and Pikwaknagon communities and other in urban Indigenous communities. As the design evolves, uh, we plan to engage them on what happens inside regarding the use of space, the programming and the services. And so far, I think it has been an excellent journey because it's it's different in that we haven't, uh, we've always, you know, consulted, but I think the, cons the consultations have been meaningful and respectful. And that's where we've learned so much. And I'm so proud to say that it has really shaped the interior and exterior design and how the building will look and function. So it's it's just been wonderful to have these genuine consultations and contributions from the Indigenous community on this wonderful new joint facility. Well, Danielle, thank you so much. Congratulations on the new facilities. It's remarkable to see an organization move uh, in the right direction and open its doors and open its heart to, to uh, to truth and reconciliation. So thank you so much for that. Well, thank you, Sean. It's a real pleasure talking with you today. Thank you all for listening today. And special thanks to Kateri and Michelle and to Danielle for participating in the podcast and for all the work they do on and off the page. I want to thank the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season and to extend my deepest gratitude to our festival members and donors for making this possible. Our entire virtual season is available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Friday's episode of Writers Festival Radio is on the art of the short story and features David Bergen, Francis Boyle, and Suvankam Thamavangsa. So I hope you'll join us. Thank you all for listening today. If you like the podcast, please rate and review it on your favorite podcasting app and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. Writers Festival Radio is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director. And I'm your host, Sean Wilson. <laughs>